So we love movie heroes who have more to them than meets the eye. Uh, we love the shy and nerdy Clark Kents who secretly underneath have uh, superhuman powers and uh, superhero underwear. Uh, whether it's Superman or Batman or Pikachu, uh, we love the hero who looks on the outside weak, but oh, if you had eyes to see, on the inside they have incredible power and can save the day. I wonder if we like these heroes because we just wish it was true. Uh, life for us tends to be the outside part, but not the inside part. Uh, let me tell you a real life story. Uh, while I was at university uh, one summer, I was working at a fiberglass factory. Uh, it was a small company, maybe about 20 people. And one of the guys there was a Christian. I didn't know this because he told me. I knew it because that's what everyone called him behind his back. Uh, in the smoker room, they'd talk about the, the Christian. They'd talk about how, oh, he's so holy. And as they discussed their plans for the weekend, they'd say, oh, no, the Christian. Oh, he'll just be going to church all weekend. And uh, it, it was not just behind his back, which they said this. They said it to his face or just, you know, loud enough that he would hear so they knew that they, uh, he was, they were talking about him. They were unfriendly to him. They excluded him. Uh, and this guy really was a bit of a loner in the workplace. Uh, at that time, I wasn't actually following Jesus. And as I looked at this man, the Christian, uh, I felt sorry for him. <laughs> this man was no hero. There was no superhero underpants uh, tucked away in there. Uh, this guy was pitiful, and I pitied him. But you know what? I was blind I did not have the eyes to see. Because if at that time I could have looked at that man uh, in the way which Paul suggests here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I would see that this guy had something even more glorious than superhuman powers. In today's passage, Paul is going to sh um, show us how it is that he sees things rightly, how he is not blind. Uh, if you look at your outlines, uh, you'll see that today's sermon is brought to you by the number three and the letter L. God's word is going to encourage us to look, to long, and to live. We're to look to the future glory, long for the future life, and live courageously to please Christ. First up, uh, we're going to look to the future glory. Now, this Christian at my old workplace... He looked quite a bit like Paul. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've um, heard from 2 Corinthians about Paul's life as he traveled around the ancient world telling people about Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 4, verse 8, he said things like, We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Uh, this guy has literally taken a beating for telling people about Jesus. And both Paul and my Christian college, a colleague, they look a bit like Jesus. Jesus was mocked, beaten, rejected, and ultimately killed. See, as Christians follow their Lord Jesus, they follow him in suffering. And yet Paul begins this section saying, So, 
we do not lose heart. How is it that Paul can have such confidence despite the incredible suffering he's going through? Well, let's have a read. Grab your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How is it that Paul does not lose heart, despite all the suffering he's going through? It's all about where he has his eyes fixed. It's where he's looking. Uh, see in verse 18, he's looking not at the things that are seen. The, the things that are seen are, are his suffering, uh, his weakness. He calls this his outer self, which is wasting away. But no, he looks instead to the things that are unseen. That these are the things happening right now, which are going to last eternally. He talks of this as his, his inner self, which is being renewed day by day. Now, Paul had actually talked a little bit about this beforehand. I just turned back one page to chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, Paul said this there. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, we behold the glory of the Lord Jesus... When we look at the gospel, that's the good news about Jesus dying, being raised to life, and ascending up into heaven in glory. This is the, uh, as we look into this more and more, the Holy Spirit is transforming us more and more to look like Jesus. Uh, This is happening now, but it won't be finished until the last day when Jesus returns in the future. Uh, There we're going to see Jesus face to face. And believers will finally be made like him and will share in his glory. Uh, It's this future glory that Paul has his eyes fixed on. Now, glory is sort of a bit of a tricky concept to pin down in a sense. Um, I guess it's sort of like it's that thing that when you see it, you are just impressed with the awesomeness of the person And you just go, wow. Glory is the thing which makes us go, when we see it, wow. In our society, uh, we've got a bunch of different ways of weighing glory, don't we? Uh, There's the Olympic gold medal weight of glory. Uh, It's it's 500 grams, six grams of which is pure gold. Uh, There's the PhD paper certificate weight of glory. Uh, There's the large house with a granite bench top and nice car weight of glory. But the glory of Christ is tons heavier. In verse 17, it's called the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the glory of the one through whom the entire universe was made. 
Uh, This is the glory of the one who right now is currently holding together and sustaining every atom and molecule of the whole universe. This is the glory of the one full of the most incredible love, someone who would give up his life and suffer the punishment, not just for friends, but for his enemies. This is the glory of the one who is the first person to be raised to life. He's broken through the barriers of death, he's crushed death, and he's able to give eternal life to whomever he chooses. If you want to know what it's like to experience the weight of these tons of glory, uh, go back and, and have a look at that Old Testament reading we saw in Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel was looking up and he sees the incredible throne of God, which is just blindingly bright. And at the end of the reading, uh, Ezekiel said this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Ezekiel didn't even see the whole thing. He just saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And just seeing that he fell flat on his face. This is the weight of glory Paul is talking about. When we see it, we will just fall to the ground in awe. And that glory is what's in store for those who follow Jesus. We will share in that glory. And uh, Paul takes us a step further. Uh, If you look carefully at verse 17, the affliction that Paul was experiencing, actually that has an important role. Uh, It is the light momentary affliction which is preparing Paul for this future eternal weight of glory. Uh, Somehow God is using the evil of Paul's suffering for his good, uh, to prepare him for this glorious future. Now, Jesus, he sort of went through a two-stage process. Stage one, suffering and death. And then stage two, resurrection and glory. As Paul goes through these afflictions, he's looking more and more like Jesus in stage one. And as he perseveres, he's being prepared more and more to look like Jesus in stage two. But you have to keep looking at the right things. If you are not looking to that future glory, then these afflictions are just going to grind you down. Friends, fix your eyes on future glory. Uh, Paul says of his current afflictions, they are light and momentary. Uh, This is quite incredible. Uh, We're eventually going to get to chapter 11. He tells us just some of what these afflictions look like. You know, imprisonment, beatings, floggings, being stoned, you know, just that sort of thing that happens every day. Uh, Now, Paul had a unique role uh, as an apostle, but all Christians can share in suffering like that. Uh, As I was preparing this sermon, I learned about 60 pastors in Vietnam who have been imprisoned in the last couple of months because they wouldn't obey laws that hindered people hearing the gospel. Sometimes it's worth you know, saying it how it is. Uh, we've got it easy. Uh, our affliction truly is a lot more slight than what it was for Paul and for what it is for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, 
but it still feels more than slight, doesn't it? Uh, when I was in my first year of university, uh, at my hall of residence, um, there was a few of those militant atheists, and they would just mock Christians, sometimes even to my face, and they'd put up these flying spaghetti monster posters which mocked Christianity. That didn't feel slight. Uh, in fact, uh, it was actually a major reason why I gave up following Jesus in my first year of university. Now, obviously, I've come back to trusting Jesus now, but uh, what I failed to do that year was to fix my eyes on the future glory. If only I'd compared the, the weight of these prison afflictions against the weight of glory that I was one day to receive. When you put them in the scales and weigh them up, I would have truly seen that my sufferings were slight compared to the eternal weight of glory. And not only slight, they're also temporary. Uh, it's sort of like the difference between chili and wasabi. Uh, but we think our troubles are going to be an endless Carolina Reaper chili worth of suffering. You know, our mouth is just going to start burning, it's never going to stop. But actually, it's just a small mouthful of wasabi. There's a, a flush of heat, but then it passes. Uh, and even better, your sinuses are cleared. Uh, <laughs> fix your eyes on the future glory and it will transform your chili, uh, transform your troubles. <laughs> well, that did go right. Transform your troubles from chili to wasabi. Uh, with the big picture of eternity, even 80 years worth of suffering is just a blip compared to the eternal glory that we'll experience. Now, I've never done a bungee jump. But if I did, I'd be confident jumping, knowing that the rope is designed to take, you know, hundreds of kilograms of weight. Because it can take hundreds of kilograms, I'm confident it can hold me. Uh, Paul probably endured harder afflictions than we'll ever face, and for a longer period of time than we'll ever have to endure. This hope was strong enough for him, and it can certainly hold for whatever you face. So when your family rejects you for following a, a different religion, when your co-workers mock you for not dishonestly cutting corners, when your kid's sports coach criticises you for not letting them play sport on a Sunday morning, when your friend says you're bigoted because of your Christian view of marriage, fix your eyes on the future glory. Uh, and as we move on to chapter 5, um, Paul changes tack. He was talking about persecution as a Christian, but now he starts talking about the suffering all of us face in mortal bodies that are falling to pieces. Uh, he uses a, a couple of different metaphors. Um, but let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly house or earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Uh, just like we saw in the kids' spot this morning, uh, he's talking about our physical bodies being a tent, uh, our earthly home. This tent is going to be destroyed. But that's fine because we're going to receive a 
building from God, which is eternal in the heavens. Uh, it's talking about the, the resurrection bodies that we're going to have after we uh, die. Uh, going on to verse 2, uh, Paul merges this metaphor uh, with another one. He says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Uh, all of a sudden this dwelling starts to become a, a garment that you, you put on. And the next couple of verses, he switches back and forth between these two metaphors. Uh, he talks a little bit about not being found naked and not wanting to be unclothed. I think nakedness here means uh, to be without a body when we die. And what Paul's saying is, no, when our body breaks down, uh, it's not as if our spirit is just going to go away and float in the air in a disembodied state. He's saying, no, after we die, we'll get a new body, a better body. And Paul says that in this body, we groan. I'm sure many of the parents here know about this sort of groaning. Uh, someone gets sick, then everything goes downhill. Uh, you know, they groan wanting to get better. They groan wanting to stop taking medicine. You know, groan wanting to run around outside again and uh, wanting their teddy bear uh, now to that point, I've just been talking about the man flu. Uh, when kids get sick, it's even worse. Uh, this, this groaning is an intense longing for a better future. Uh, in fact, the original word here is sometimes used to talk about a, a pregnant woman groaning and longing for their child to be born. Uh, in verse 4, Paul tells us what it is that uh, we groan for in such a way. We groan in order that we might be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Uh, last week we looked at where Paul called his body a jar of clay, which was the ancient times equivalent of a plastic disposable takeaway container. Our mortal bodies just don't last. Uh, your takeaway container will one day crack. You may have the, the fanciest tent from MacPack, or you might have a cheap one that you snapped up from Aldi. Whether it takes a long time or short, your tent will wear out. Uh, for me, it was a, a bout of sickness at 25, where I worked out my body was not invincible, that it was not just going to carry on working forever. And at that point, promises like this chapter has became far more precious. Uh, the encouragement again is, fix your eyes on the future. This time on the future life. Because if you, if you don't, you will live in one of two ways. Willful ignorance or despair. Uh, see, before my bout of sickness, it was easy to believe that my current body was perfect and it was all I would ever need. And even afterwards, once I got better and um, was back to full form, it was easy to slip back into thinking I was invincible again. It's hard to long for the resurrection when you think you've already got it all right now. But that's foolish. The likelihood of your body breaking down again is 100%. Don't live in willful ignorance. Long for the future life. Uh, the other option is despair, to mourn your fading strength, your fading beauty, 
to despair at your coming ends, uh, to despair at every funeral you go to, to you know, try not to think about it, to shelve it away as something you'll deal with later. It's hard to long for the resurrection when you are so fixated only on this life and so despair. Don't live in despair long for the future life. We will be raised from the dead. What is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We will be given permanent God-built bodies that will last for all eternity. Why can we be confident? Look at verse 5. He who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If I were to go down to JB Hi-Fi and pay a deposit, they would let me take a TV because I have given them the assurance that the rest of the money is sure to come. God gives us the Holy Spirit as such a guarantee, as a down payment. We have the Holy Spirit inside our mortal bodies to assure us that the rest of the payment, our resurrection bodies, is sure to come. Fix your eyes on the glorious future. Long for those resurrection bodies which are certain to come. Uh, this section today started with Paul's bold statement, so we do not lose heart. In the final section, uh, twice he says, we are always of good courage. As Paul fixes his eyes on the glorious future, it means he can live courageously in the now. Uh, whether it's affliction or his body falling to pieces, he can carry on courageously because he's certain about the future. And in this final section, uh, Paul helps us to see how to live in the now. Firstly, life in the now, in this tent is not home. Uh, I hiked the, the six-foot track a couple of years ago. It's uh, up in the Blue Mountains. Uh, on this hike, I spent a couple of nights in a tent. Let me assure you, it was not luxurious. It was a temporary experience. And after a couple of nights of insects, hard ground, snoring travel companions, uh, let me assure you, I was groaning for a permanent fixed dwelling. That's what this life is. It's temporary. It's transient. And more than that, this life, life in this tent, it's not home because home is where the heart is. Uh, Paul says in verse 6 that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And in verse 8 he goes on to say that we would rather be away from the body that is dead and at home with the Lord. Life now means that we aren't living face-to-face -face with Jesus. Life now means that uh, we face affliction for following Jesus, uh, that we don't yet have those immortal resurrection bodies. Life now means we still live in this, this tension, like it says in verse 7, of walking by faith and not by sight. Uh, we need to just keep focusing on this invisible future rather than on our visible troubles question for us today is, where do we long to live? Uh, we should enjoy the good gifts God's given us in this life, 
But this place where we just temporarily pitch a tent, are we happy calling that home? Uh, Many of us today would say we love our Lord Jesus. Does our love for him play out in our desire to be face-to-face with him? Or is it more, you know, we're really thankful for the precious gift of salvation, but at the same time, we'd still prefer live on our own and just visit him from time to time like the in-laws. Paul is pretty clear on where he longs to live. But when he wrote this letter, uh, he was still on earth, and in verse 9, he models how we should live in the now. He says that whether we are at home with Jesus or away, that's here in this body, we make it our aim to please him. We long to be with him, but until then, we make it our aim to live in a way that pleases our Lord. And he gives the reason in verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. There's no wriggle room here, is there? We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I think sometimes we can uh, make it seem like, you know, if you trust in Jesus, judgment's over, uh, we just waltz into the new heavens and earth and bypass this bit. No, this is what the Bible says. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, Paul has confidently been speaking about God's grace towards us. He's spoken about how we will be raised and brought into Jesus' presence and given these new bodies. I don't think he's all of a sudden, in this verse, going to start contradicting himself. It's not like a situation where at the Olympics, you know, there's a round of drug testing and then an athlete might be stripped of a gold medal value given. Uh, No, Uh, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been made right with God. We are saved by faith alone, not by what we do. Uh, But yet, there is judgment, even for us believers. It it might be better to view this judgment as an evaluation. Uh, It's not clear we never get spelt out what the rewards and the punishments are. Uh, But at the very least, this judgment will reveal if we have pleased Jesus during the time we have lived in our earthly bodies. Perhaps earning us the praise, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Uh, Whatever the case, Paul isn't telling us this to make us doubt whether we are saved or not. He's not telling us this so we can speculate about what the rewards and the punishments will be. He's not telling us this so we can sort of rank ourselves against the other Christians in the room to see if we're doing better. No, Paul's point is to spur us on to obedience. He's trying to motivate us to live in a way that pleases Christ. As we keep reading through 2 Corinthians and the rest of the Bible, we see in lots of different ways how it is to live to please Christ. But this verse in particular... This changes the way we think about what being a good Christian is, doesn't it? Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, I, I have a sort of mental checklist, which I sort of you know, go through and see how many boxes I can tick to show that I'm a good Christian. You know, I've served in this ministry, I've made balloons at Strathfield Fair, I've financially supported this ministry. But this part of the Bible gets us to tear up that list 
That, that system tries to make being a Christian about being a bunch of tasks and rules. Whereas actually, it's about a relationship. I, I, I do good not to tick a box, but to please my Lord. I, I, I want him to be pleased. I know one day I'm going to be judged and he's going to ask me how I've lived my life in this body. I want him to be pleased with me on that judgment day. But I don't know how you're going in your Christian walk. Um, perhaps today might be a day uh, where you need to confess to Jesus that you haven't been living in a way that pleases him. Uh, if so, tell him about it. Ask for his forgiveness and for help to change. Uh, and as we do this, let's at the same time keep looking at the awesome promises God's made to us in these chapters. Uh, keep longing to be with him in that future life. Keep longing to please Christ in your thoughts and actions. Uh, Paul doesn't tell us this to crush us, but to spur us on to live courageously to please Christ. Let's do just that while we fix our eyes on the glorious eternal future. Let me pray for us.